This is Jonathan Master, host of Theology on the Go. For this week's episode, we're re-airing a previous interview of Dr. James Dolezal speaking on divine simplicity. The reason we're doing this is we're starting a series on the doctrine of God. If you're not already a subscriber, we'd encourage you to subscribe to Theology on the Go on iTunes, and you could always stream us at placefortruth.org. You'll also find follow-up articles to these interviews on placefortruth.org, so stay tuned. And thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. I'm here with James Dolezal. James teaches at Cairn University, and he is the author of God Without Parts, Divine Simplicity, and the Metaphysics of God's Absoluteness. I want to ask him today about God's simplicity, a doctrine that we often don't hear people talk about today. So, James, what is divine simplicity? Divine simplicity is an ancient doctrine, but still one confessed uh, by a number of contemporary uh, denominations, that says God is, in effect, not composed of parts, that there is nothing more basic than God or maybe put it more confusingly, nothing more basic than God's godness that explains him or that accounts for him. So that God is not built up out of things more basic than himself. And in one sense, the argument is from God's independence that God does not depend upon anything outside himself or distinct from himself uh, for the fullness of his being. That would be the basic claim. And the way that this was expressed in uh, older Protestant confessions, um, the 39 Articles, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Second London Confession of Faith, all of these confessions used the words of Thomas Cramner that said God is without parts. And Cramner thought of that in really a broad sense, not just material parts. I think most people uh, readily confess that God is simple in this sense, that is to say, not a complex of material bits sort of put together uh, to make what he is, but that he's an immaterial being, and so he's simple or not composed of material parts. But Cramner had in mind something much more broad than that, which was to say not composed of parts in any sense. And with respect to something like the discussion of divine attributes, what we mean is that God and the fullness of his being is not the consequent of a series of attributes all sort of pieced together and unified, so that God is not the consequent of goodness and wisdom and justice and power and all else that we say that he is, but that God just is these things. That's what it is to be God. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we talk about the attributes of God and we yeah. study them individually. Right. Um, and... and, and you're not suggesting that we shouldn't do that. No, I, I would I would go so far as to say that it's impossible for us not to study them individually. Uh, and the reason for that is because although we confess that God is simple and that in God these are not so many little parts, as it were, standing side by side, collectively making up God, in the way that we understand and think about God, he does disclose himself to us in multiplicity. That is to say, the unity of God, the unity of his being, is made known to us through subsequent temporal uh, multiplied revelations, so that 
though we're, when we talk about his goodness, his wisdom, his justice, his power, all the things we say of him, we're not picking out different parts of God, but the way that we conceive of these and the way that he reveals the fullness of his being to us is not in an instantaneous flash as fullness of being. Our minds could not comprehend uh, that that perfect existence that he is in himself. He discloses himself to us uh, through his redemptive historical actions uh, bit by bit. Uh, in a way, this is his accommodation to our way of thinking and knowing. We are composite thinkers, composite knowers. God is a simple being, but to accommodate himself to us, he discloses himself to us, as it were, bit by bit. So I think maintaining a a multitude of attributes through which we consider the perfection of God is is not only useful, it's it's inescapable to our human condition. So if that's inescapable, and if that is, in one sense, how God reveals himself to us through these attributes that he possesses, um, what is it that uh, the divine, the idea of divine simplicity brings into our discussion that's important? That is to say, yeah. why is it important for me not just to acknowledge the attributes of God which are revealed and which I can at some level understand, but why is it important for me to understand God also as simple? It's a good question. Um, the reason for emphasizing simplicity and the reason that early Protestants uh, confess this uniformly, all of their confessions, uh, the Belgic Confession starts out and says, we believe, uh, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one simple and spiritual being which we call God. Now the value of that confession is saying that while we consider God under a host of multiple attributes, in reality, these are God is not, in effect, dependent upon multiple attributes. So that God's godness is not dependent. And if I could illustrate it this way, um, there, the attributes of humanity, um, as it were, are in a certain sense not strictly identical with our humanity. So I may I may talk about Jonathan's. Uh, wisdom and Jonathan's power, but your wisdom and your power are not one and the same thing in you. Mm -hmm. That is to say, that is to say, these are these are things that explain you to me. Um, what we're saying is that nothing explain, nothing accounts for God. Mm -hmm. Nothing is the reason for God that is more basic than God. Your power is something other than your humanity. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you are powerful, if I, if I can call you powerful. Um, <laughs> you are powerful in virtue of something other than what you are as a human, because you could just as well be a weak human. In other right. words, your power is, in the older language, an accident. Right. What we're saying in God is that God's attributes are not fortuitous to his godness, the way that your, your goodness or your wisdom, and I think you're wise, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm also your coworker and, you know, and your friend, so maybe I'm going to say that. But your wisdom is not something that you have by virtue of being human. Uh, look around, look how many fools there are. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, wisdom is something that is acquired in addition to our humanity okay. and that determines our humanity to be something that it's not in virtue of itself. What we're wanting to say with simplicity is that God does not possess attributes in this way, as the older way of putting it, determinations of being. God is not made to be wise in virtue of wisdom, God just is, God is wise. In fact, we might even say God is wisdom itself. 
God is power itself, so that he's not dependent upon qualities or perfections that are really distinct from his godness. His godness is nothing but these things that we ascribe to him. That's a very helpful description and a very helpful explanation. You mentioned at a, at a couple points the way in which this has been affirmed throughout the history of our Protestant confessions. I'm wondering right. then, is this something that is still widely understood and basically um, accepted within the evangelical church today? Mm, that's a good question. I'm, In some ways, I'm not sure, because I, I can't speak for evangelicalism in, in its broadest uh, sense. Um, it is still confessed in, in confessional evangelical um, environments, uh, such as those who hold the older form of the 39 Articles or the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, Second London Confession. Um, and you still find affirmation of it even in sort of modern evangelical theologians like uh, Millard Erickson or Wayne Grudem, for instance. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, personally, I'm not I'm not convinced that uh, Erickson or Grudem fully uh, have grasped or articulated the the radical implications of the doctrine um, in the way that it might have been understood by someone like Stephen Charnock or John Owen. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, they still see they still see an importance for it. Now, I I personally believe that many peop- many Christians who have never even heard of the doctrine of simplicity, and let's face it, that's most of us. Even in the confessional context, we, you know, we read God without parts, and we either don't think much about it or we think it refers to material parts. But even if we haven't heard of the doctrine of simplicity formally, I think the basic convictions of the doctrine are, are really universal to Orthodox Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And in this sense in particular, if you were to ask the average Christian what is the reason for God, or what explains God? Mm-hmm. It may seem like an abstract sort of question, but I think most Christians in some way or another would affirm that nothing that is not God accounts for God, that God is not explained by something not God. Right. Um, and I think that, that basic conviction is what really underlies the doctrine of simplicity. Simplicity is a way of formalizing that common Christian conviction. Mm-hmm. Now, formalizing that conviction may result in some surprising and sort of counterintuitive uh, statements that we have to make, such as God's existence and essence are identical, and you know these sort of more technical ways of discussing the doctrine. But right. I do think that the the theological heart of the doctrine is not something that is that is so far from the average Christian or, or evangelical Christian, but the formalization of it, actually recognizing what it is that we believe when we say these things, uh, I think that is something that definitely needs to be rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for this discussion. This is James Dolezal, my wise friend and author of <laughs> God Without Parts, Divine Simplicity and the Metaphysics of God's Absoluteness, and this has been Theology on the Go, discussing divine simplicity. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. 
and listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.